Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Georgia was once a leader in the oyster canning business, but that last cannery closed in the 1960s. Over the past few decades, the local bivalves have gotten a bad rap. Too wild, too muddy, too much work. So you don't see them popping up on a lot of menus. But over the past few years, a group of people attuned to the estuaries of Glynn, Camden, Liberty, and McIntosh counties have helped revive oyster farming in Georgia. I said, this is my last chance. If I can't make it now, I mean, what can I lose? I might as well go out trying. That is Ernest McIntosh Sr. speaking to our GPB colleagues. One of many stories told in the book High Low Tide, The Revival of a Southern Oyster. I spoke to author Andre Gallant from WUGA in Athens. Andre, hello. Hello. And Brian Rackley. He's co-owner of Kimball House, a Decatur restaurant known for its oysters and where Ernest McIntosh's oysters are now on the menu. Hello, Brian. Hey, Virginia. How are you? Very well. And so excited about this. This is a topic I knew nothing about. And that's something that comes across, Andre. So a little spoiler alert here. You do reveal that Georgia has a coast. A number of people (laughs) that we meet in your book get asked about that by people who don't realize that Georgia's 100 miles of coastline offers oysters. Why not? That's a great question. Um, But I I thought it wasn't true for as many times as I heard that um, from folks down the coast. But then, uh, as I detail in the book, I attended an event at the state capitol where there were elected officials asking oystermen about how the waters down in Apalachicola were treating their oysters. And it just made me realize that a number of folks could use a, a geography lesson. <laughs> Andre, about 100 years ago, Georgia's oyster industry was quite robust. So can you take us back to that era? What was going on and what did it mean for the coast? So the United States has had a, a historic oyster industry going back decades and decades. Overfishing and uh, development in New York and then the Virginia Chesapeake Bay area caused those oyster areas to decline. And Georgia was well positioned to take up the mantle. The Georgia oyster, which, as you described earlier, was not like those big oysters up in New England or in the Gulf are, but it's perfect for canning because it's so abundant in our in our estuaries. They grow on top of each other. It's hard to stop them from growing here. So that allowed cannery after cannery to open. So if you go back to the 1900s from Charleston down to Jacksonville, all those small little communities um, had little canneries that employed dozens of folks. Hmm. And then what happened to the industry? There were some early, you know, health scares. A lot of bad press followed. And then, honestly, people after World War II stopped eating um, canned oysters. The just consumer taste changed. And then the big thing that impacts the fishing communities here is in the 1960s is that we have changes in uh, minimum wage laws, right? So people working in canneries were usually poor, often African-American, especially in the South, and they were paid piecework, you know? They they didn't make a lot of money. And so these new laws come into effect, and so the the canneries no longer have a, a cheap workforce. And then it just slowly starts to decline as Asian imported seafood picks up. Brian, I want to go back to what Andre said about this hard to get them on the half shell, this this too wild, too much work, possibly unattractive to businesses or consumers. What is the Georgia oyster like? 
The wild Georgia oyster is it's basically just like a muddy cluster. And, you know, we're, we're not so prim and proper that we can't handle a little bit of dirt. The mud's not really the issue. It's just the fact that they're all basically glued together. And in order for you to put them on a tray of ice in a context where raw oysters are being sold as raw oysters, it would require a phenomenal amount of labor to do that. You have to basically just chip them apart with some sort of tool. And we're just not equipped to do that. And I think that for that reason, those oysters have always had a more, a more esoteric culinary purpose and, and they just find themselves being roasted uh, in those clumps rather than someone trying to utilize them in a restaurant. Well, Andre writes about every oyster having a distinctive taste. So what does an oyster from Georgia taste like, Brian? Georgia oysters do have a, a, a really nice salinity for the most part. Uh, I do find them to be saltier than stuff that's uh, being raised in the Gulf. They still have this sort of clean, a lot of times, like kind of a, a wild spring onion character to them that I think is really neat. And a lot of them will always kind of present like a little bit of a, like a buttery note, which I think is really cool too. Well, sounds fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's an industry that, you know, everybody who's listening to this should be tapping their fingers, wondering where it's at. How come <laughs> it's not here? And, you know, Andre's probably better equipped to answer that question of why isn't it here? But... Um, you know, it's something that people need to know about. Let's talk then yes. about the economics <laughs> of oysters. How how big is the industry and are a lot of Georgians actually able to make a living working the waters? Well, currently we um, only have about 10 leaseholders in the state. And so the lease is the area where um, an oysterman works and that is controlled by the Department of Natural Resources. And because um, the workforce is getting a little bit older, there aren't too many uh, young folks getting into it. Wild harvest, there's just not a lot of money in it. It's a lot of hard work. Um, you maybe make somewhere between 50 and and $100 for a big, heavy bushel of oysters, um, depending on your clients. The industry itself is quite small, and it's why folks are so excited about uh, oyster farming or aquaculture coming, because it will effectively double the amount of money they can make per oyster. And it also, because of the way oyster farming is done, it's a, it's a much more manageable process. You don't have to always depend on the tides and you don't have to sit out there under the sun cranking away at, at oyster mounds. A lot of it's, it becomes more of a, a gardening technique or like a tending instead of this very manually oriented sweaty work. For decades, restaurants considered Georgia oysters more trouble than they were worth. But oyster aquaculture is a fledgling movement dedicated to putting more local oysters on the table. Andre Gallant wrote about the eager coalition of people helping to cultivate these briny bivalves in his book, A High-Low Tide. Brian Rackley is a local oyster booster and co-owner of the restaurant Kimball House. So, Andre, among the many characters that we meet, Justin Manley is one that you credit as the first person to farm Georgia oysters. He's now hatchery manager at the University of Georgia Marine Extension and Georgia Sea Grant. So what possessed him to start farming oysters in the state? He moved down here um, to attend grad school in Savannah, um, and he was already quite obsessive about aquaculture and oysters, you know, he had already decided to to make oysters his life. And he got down here and I believe he was at a, um, a an oyster roast and was inquiring about where the oysters came from, knowing that, you know, Georgia does have a coast. And when he found out they were from away, he was flabbergasted because, you know, he could just take one look at our marshes here and he could see the relative lack of development and just it was obvious to him that this was prime oyster growing grounds. 
all of those who were watermen down there who worked the hundred mile coast, they watched him as he was yeah. experimenting with it. So how did he develop his techniques of oyster farming? Well, his techniques were based on a French method, which is used in, in various ways. It's essentially called collecting spat, which is the spawn of the oyster. The oyster starts spawning in the late spring and do so over the summer. And essentially, he was doing what he does now in a hatchery, but just out in the wild using plastic um, to collect little tiny baby oysters and growing them until they got viable and then moving them into uh, bags where they could grow fat and healthy. Essentially just adapting what the oyster does naturally. A, a wild oyster will just find whatever decent surface it can to glom onto, even as small as a you know microscopic grain of sand. He was just cobbling together a, a method that was very well in use around the world and in this country already, but because of aquaculture hadn't been introduced to Georgia and was not being allowed due to regulations, he had to do this crazy roundabout way that added hours and hours um, in, into his work life, but he was dedicated to do it because he, he knows that the, the Georgia oyster is something that should return to prominence. Your book reveals a whole system, not just the people who are harvesting or farming, but the researchers, the aquaculture scientists who work collaboratively with harvesters making this, or to make the Georgia selfish business, shellfish business competitive. That mm -hmm. is a really tense relationship in some places. How does it work in Georgia? I think you could describe it as contentious because watermen, they're a special breed. Um, folks who work the water are tough and they're opinionated and they don't like to be pushed around. And, you know, because they're dealing with a, a food business, they have to deal with regulators, right? Um, and then they, then there are these, you know, the university researchers who are, you know, they have PhDs, you know, where these guys went to the school of hard knocks. Um, so they don't quite see eye to eye on everything. Um, what that means is that someone working in extension like Justin Manley um, has to kind of, one, tread slowly and, and speak a special language. And I think it helps when folks who are trying to aid in the industry have experience in the industry like Justin did. Brian, for you, a lot of your business, I would imagine, is about the relationships with those who are farming. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it is for me. Um, I mean, you, you, have to, you should always be aware of the, the risk and the dangers of eating raw, any sort of raw protein. But, you know, I just, have, I just always felt like we could eliminate some of the risk variables by knowing who we were buying from, knowing how they, how they, knowing what type of steward they were, knowing how they treated their lease. I mean, I think Kimball House has the best oyster list in the city, if not the southeast. And I don't think that that's because... I'm capable of picking up a phone or sending an email. I think it's because we work with the best farmers. Oysters have become this symbol of wealth and classiness, you know, for lack of a better word, that if you see a movie scene and they're trying to depict that it's a fancy party, it's oysters on a half shell. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that I struggle with because I wish that it was a, a food source that was not alienating from a, a, a price standpoint. And, you know, hopefully that's something that, that we can sort of work through as the industry gets a little bit more mature uh, and we're looking for ways to use uh, use oysters differently. But yeah, I mean, you know, it, one of the biggest differences between wild oysters and cultured oysters is the fact that you do have to make a pretty large investment in equipment and seed and those sorts of inventory items and it's not without a uh, considerable startup cost. 
Andrzej, this revival surely didn't come easily. And But is it a revival? How far along is it? Where do you think the revival of the oyster farming along the Georgia coast is now? Well, I think you can say that the 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 a large uh, a boom is is set to begin, um, and it's just waiting on some regulations to be rewritten. The DNR is moving slowly, and I think some would say far too slowly, in changing um, some of the regulations that would allow oyster farmers, um, and they're doing so because they want it to be right for our marsh which, you know, I can respect. But I think for the, the folks who are ready to start making a living and ready to invest, it's moving a little bit too slowly because especially when you can look one state over in South Carolina that um, just as rapidly is um, leapfrogging us in terms of aquaculture. Um, but the other element in this is um, is the workforce because they're, um, you know, rural populations. You know, when we're talking about the coast, we're, you know, we, we talk about Savannah, but what we're, we really are talking about tiny, tiny, tiny little towns that don't have um, a lot of places for folks to work and young people are leaving. They're leaving in droves and it would behoove the state to get oyster farming set up as quickly as possible to give some lifelines, one to these young peoples and entrepreneurs and this industry could still tank unless we get people willing to devote their lives to it. And I think, you know, the other, the other half of this equation is getting people who, like um, Brian said, not just a bunch of rich folks in here, but people who are, you know, authentically of the Georgia coast and have, have a lineage in um, the marshes. Um, the Macintoshes who we heard from are, are, you know, are a great example of this and they deserve great success. And I think there are other people who can, you know, and fit a similar bill and get promoted by the state and really put us back on the map. Andre Gallant, thank you so much. And thank you very much. Andre Gallant is the author of the book, A High Low Tide, The Revival of a Southern Oyster. Brian Rackley, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Brian Rackley, he's co-owner of Kimball House in Decatur, where you can go slurp Georgia oysters on the half shell. Stay with us for a conversation with Leah Penniman, who wants to revive another tradition of farming while black. I'm Virginia Prescott. This is On Second Thought. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.